Welcome back, friends. Welcome back. This is Corbett Report Radio, and of course, I am your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you once again this evening from my home recording studios here in the sunny climes of western Japan. So once again, welcome to all of you, wherever, whenever, and however you might be listening to my voice. And it is great to have you on board with Corbett Report Radio as we wrap up yet another very interesting week here on the broadcast. Again, a week with a lot of very interesting guests and interesting conversations. So I certainly hope that you enjoy this new radio program. And of course, I do appreciate all of the feedback that I've gotten so far about the program through the contact form on CorbettReport.com. It is greatly appreciated, and of course, all of your support and outpouring of of feedback is is very much appreciated and is taken on board. So thank you, one and all, for tuning in and investing your mental time and energy in alternative media. And on that note, as you may or may not know by now, this is Friday night, so it is another Friday night highlight edition of this broadcast, where I dig through some of the archives on CorbettReport.com, for the audio of some of my interviews and videos and podcast episodes that I think might be interesting to all of you out there who may not be familiar with my work, or even those who are familiar with it, it's sometimes good to go back into the archives and take a re-listen to things and see how they situate in a new context. Because, of course, the world stage is constantly shifting and the players are always changing, but it's interesting to see how the script, well, pretty much stays the same uh, throughout, well... Decade after decade, generation after generation, century after century, one might even say, if one had that broad a perspective. And one of the things that is uh, preoccupying a lot of people right now is, of course, the economic collapse that we see going on around us. And tonight we're going to be dipping into the archives of a video series. Of course, last week on Friday Night Highlight, we were listening to economic, uh, sorry, we were listening to my video series on film literature and the New World Order and uh, some of the interesting predictive programming going on there. Well, this week we're going to be listening to a different uh, YouTube video playlist that I have, and of course I'll put in the link to the playlist in the documentation for today's episode of the broadcast, which you can find at CorbettReport.com slash radio. And tonight we're going to be listening to Economics 101, a YouTube video series uh, featuring some really great guests on the subject of economics over the past, uh, that I've been doing for the past couple of years. I haven't updated that series for quite a while now, although it's still, I think, probably now, maybe even more important than ever, as we see, uh, as I say, this economic collapse taking place around us. So tonight we're going to be listening to some really interesting economic thinkers and, uh, and people about some very important subjects, and a subject that a lot of people's eyes glaze over when you start talking to them about economics, and I think that is exactly the point of the way the system has been engineered to try to get us into that, that glassy-eyed stare phrase phase when we are encountering this economic information. Once we start to hear all of the, the highfalutin terms and language that they've created to try to make this subject sound really dull, well, once we start hearing that and phasing out and tuning out and not really paying attention, that's when all of the trickery begins. So as unfortunate as it may be, we I think we have to, to some extent, engage with this trickery and at least understand what it is they're doing to us. And once you start really engaging in it and realizing that this really comes down to your bottom line and what's in your wallet, I think people start to get at least a little bit more interested. And once, really, once you start to get into it, it's not that hard to figure out the ways that they're tricking you. It's just getting through that initial distaste of going through all this 
highfalutin language and this complex jargon that they've created and constructed to try to make us go to sleep on these extremely important issues. So on that note, we're going to be dipping into the archives for some Economics 101 uh, videos and audio tonight. So I hope you'll stay tuned for that. I think it's going to be a very important broadcast. So let's pick it up from there after the break. Thank you again for joining me. And you are listening to Corbett Report Radio. You just do as you're told. I swallow my pride, give a tip of my hat. Took one more look at the sunset, no turning back. No dawn's a new phase, our star is burning black. Shattery rays through the haze, I'm burning that. Surrounded by parchment because it is sacred. Inside the compartment to avoid all the hatred. Did you catch that or were you on your radio? Welcome back, my friends, to Corbett Report Radio. Of course, I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. And tonight we are going over Economics 101, all of the jargon and the terms and the issues and the players that the banksters have thrown in our face to try to confound us about this, the most important aspect of our society, and something that really does control so much of what we do, but so few of us really take the time to try to understand what it is we're facing. And for those who are out there who are doing this, my hat's off to you and I salute you. But even for myself, I find it difficult sometimes to wrap my head around some of this jargon and terminology that has been constructed around the entire bankster enterprise, the entire con game that they've been running for centuries now in trying to enslave us in their web of debt. So on that note, tonight we're going over some of the archives of YouTube.com slash Corbett Report and specifically a playlist called Economics 101. And I'll put the link, of course, in the, uh, the episode notes to tonight's episode at CorbettReport.com slash radio. But there you'll be able to find all of the, the videos that I conducted over the past well, a couple of years talking to some really interesting economic thinkers with some interesting ideas about uh, how to fix the mess that the banksters have created for us. So first up tonight is someone that I know you know very well by now, if you were listening to one of our first episodes of this broadcast with Paul Grignon talking about his Money as Debt series. Well, a couple of years ago now, in fact, almost exactly two years ago, no, exactly two years ago, November 18th, 2009, I talked to Paul Grignon about his extremely fascinating concept of digital coin. And if people who were listening last night might have heard the caller call in about Bitcoin. Well, that's one of the ideas out there. Another one is Digital Coin by Paul Grignon, a very interesting and fascinating idea. And I think there's there's a lot to it. So I hope people go to digitalcoin.info to check out the idea in its entirety and try to get their head around it. But for a little intro, let's listen to this uh, interview where I talked to Paul Grignon about his idea. Well, Mr. Grignon... Uh, I'd like to talk with you today about an alternative form of currency that you've proposed at your website, digitalcoin.info. And as I understand it, the underlying basis for this uh, alternative currency involves separating currency out into its two distinct forms, which in this case is called perpetual coin and credit coin. Can you flesh that idea out for us a little bit? The, the two different forms are actually simply the unit. Perpetual coin is a necessary step to connect the value of currency we have today to the value of credit coin and tomorrow. But in actual fact, and functionally, there would only be one kind of coin, and it would be the coin 
the credit coin. And the, the credit coin <clears throat> is self-issued credit. Instead of what, what we do when we go to a bank is we sign a, a loan, and that gives us the bank takes that as a promise from us and gives us a credit, and then we spend the, the bank gives us a promise that they'll pay us that matches our promise to pay them, and we have a checking account. So that's how money is created. And here you just don't go to the bank. You just These issuers would simply issue their own credit as a contract against delivery of whatever they do or whatever they produce. And and, and picture this. Well, a lot of people picture this on a personal level. Try to picture this on, like, the steel industry or government. We're talking about large industries which simply fund their own activities, their productive activities, by promises to produce the product that they're making. That's a really simple idea. It's certainly been used before. And the perpetual coin is only meant to establish a value unit, a, a connection, so that everything will be priced in perpetual coin, but actually you use all these different credit coins from all, all different kinds of issuers. Instead of the government and the banks having a monopoly, it would be anybody who provides a service and, and or a product. So and so especially and most logically those ones that would be in most reliable demand, like utilities and uh, energy companies and farming especially. Do you understand? Did I make that clear? It's, it's money based on real necessities. It's like having, it's like, to me, people say, well, money's got to be like gold, you know, in limited supply. Well, you know, real things are in limited supply and nobody really needs gold. So why do we need that as an intermediary? We have because gold was the technology of the day. So we invested gold at this value because that made it useful as money. That we have better technology today, and gold is like, uh, you know, very difficult to actually use as money. If, if you follow the history of our money system, using gold as money is how we got into this mess in the first place. Well, that's an interesting concept, and I know my listeners will be interested in that, so can you flesh that out a little bit? Well, all of these uh, these monies have been commodities so far. Even whether it's government fiat money or bank credit money or gold or silver, they all uh, derive their value from being something that exists in its quantities. Its value and quantity are related to how much is in existence to the real economy, the things that can be bought with it. And in the, the difference with that and the digital coin proposal is that in the digital coin proposal, the specific promise of a specific thing. Right? If the issuer, if the issuer's coin will buy a in, in the in the cartoon on my website, which is uh, digitalcoin.info, there's a car, eight minute cartoon, and in that cartoon, Anton the baker solves the problem of there being no silver coins to facilitate the market. Everybody's at the market, but nobody has any money, so they can't trade because they don't have some silver. I mean, if you look at that just in the in the, the most glaring, uh, it, it's like an absurdity. Why can't we trade just because we don't have some bits of metal, right? And you see, it's, it's like that metal was just a form of technology, and you didn't have it, so you couldn't trade. You know, back to direct barter, which is very clumsy and hard. And so that the idea of the digital coin is to make the, the, this exchange completely fluid between people and self-issued so that everybody's promise. And I, I've got a whole system that balances things out so that you, you people's credit is evaluated based on their balance of trade. So that this is a 
it enforces a balanced budget. It's not, there's no way of building up a debt and paying interest on it. Simply everything is pay as you go. Right. Well, you have fleshed this out in a great deal of detail at digitalcoin.info, and you've got a lot of different documents and videos that people can take a look at to start to understand this in its broader context. But as I understand it, one of the, the best things about this system is that it inherently rewards the productive members of society. I, I keep trying to look for ways of gaming the system, okay? And I invite people to try and hack it and, and destroy it and prove me wrong because that would only make it stronger if we could fix it. Um, but so far, I don't. The, the system designed so that there is no such thing as a monetary profit. In fact, if you follow the logic of the whole thing, if an issuer is issuing their own coin, the only way they actually get the profit is by spending more of it. So you always have to spend your profits. You can't take a profit and then use that to make another monetary profit. You can only make a profit by spending it. And I think that's a really important feature. You see, this all of this stuff comes out of the simplest of math, you know, stuff you learn in grade four, huh, Scott? Uh, it's just if you apply it right, it has amazing effects. And I'm still looking at it. I'm looking. I'm arguing with people about it. I'm writing a couple of articles about it right now. And um, it's getting to get people interested. It just came to me as an idea when somebody said, what could you do with a completely secure technology uh, to create a liberated money system? And that's a challenge, and this is the idea I came up with. Well, from what I've studied of this system, I can't see a way to, to hack the, the or game the system, as you say. So... Uh, certainly I'd invite people to, to try that for themselves, but um, as you point out, this is something that relies on, on new technologies and a vast electronic um, grid for, for calculating these types of things in, in real time, vast transactional data. So uh, I guess there are electronic limitations to implementing this type of system. Well, the ideal situation for the system to be implemented is really top-down, you know, just put it in place. But it's really, if you look at the whole system, it's a vast simplification of our financial system. You know, whole reams of things are just completely eliminated because there's no, there is no financial sector, really. I mean, investment banking in terms of getting people to use their bear coin to invest in new investment, that would continue as a, a logical function. And also because there's always a, a flow of coin from those people who have coin to those who want it. Because one of the features of this, the system is that the, each issuer uh, offers a dividend. If you pay that, if you buy from directly from the issuer uh, with the issuer's own coin, you get more. So that's a dividend for holding the the issuer's credit in the meantime. Between the time the issuer spent that credit into the economy and it comes back in redemption, the issuer pays a dividend to the final person who cashes it in. But in actual fact, it's flowed amongst all the people, and it actually represents uh, an investment. Every one of the, uh, that, that currency, instead of just being some kind of abstract symbol, is literally an investment in that specific issuer. Once again, Paul Grignon of the Money as Dead documentaries and, of course, digitalcoin.info, where you can find out more about that very interesting idea. And I think that conversation doesn't quite do justice to the idea. So I would, again, strongly urge people to go to digitalcoin.info to find out more about that idea specifically and, and maybe flesh it out a little bit more for yourselves before 
casting judgment on it either way. I think uh, regardless of what you think about it, ultimately, I think it's definitely an interesting idea. And it's good to see people coming up with ideas to try to spin us away from that web of debt that I alluded to earlier that the banksters have ensnared us in. But on that note, it's time for our first break here. So let's take a break and we'll be right back with more Economics 101 here on Corbett Report Radio. James Corbett here of CorbettReport.com, and you are tuned into Corbett Report Radio. So it's great to have you back as we cut through the economic matrix and try to find a better understanding of Economics 101, the basic precepts of this economic enslavement grid that has been created around us and that uh, few of us really understand how it works because of the wall of jargon and terminology they've set up around it. So continuing our exploration of tonight's theme, we're going to move along to an issue that, of course, we've been covering here on Corbett Report Radio for the last few weeks, and I've been covering on CorbettReport.com for quite a while now. It's the issue of the banks and the banksters and uh, the current meltdown of the Eurozone, which people can scoff at, but whatever happens there is going to be felt worldwide. And it's a good thing to see the Euro collapsing in terms of the European Union and that non-democratic, unelected bureaucracy, the bureaucracy as I call it, well, it's good to see that collapsing, but unfortunately it does mean that people will be hurt by it, and uh, unfortunately I think that's part of the plan. But right now let's turn to an interesting clip that I get from ZeroHedge.com, which is a great source for uh, information about economics if people haven't tuned into ZeroHedge.com yet, I suggest you do. Um, They have really a lot of very insightful commentary and a lot of employing a lot of that that economics jargon so it's a good way to at least start to steep yourself in that and start to come to a better understanding of the jargon the way it's used but this clip has nothing to do with the jargon it's actually from nigel farage a well-known euro skeptic of the uk independence party who's given some great speeches over the years basically lambasting the eurocrats and really taking them to task in their home turf there in the european parliament if you could even call it that, really. I mean, what is this European Parliament? But at any rate, uh, Nigel Farage has given some great speeches over the years, some really fiery speeches, uh, basically putting the uh, the Eurocrats in their place. And this one is no exception. This was just posted up on Zero Hedge yesterday, November 17th. It's under the title, Watch Nigel Farage Dance on the Euro's Grave. And the write-up on Zero Hedge reads, Nigel Farage needs no introduction. The famous Eurosceptic is one of the very few men who has the temerity to question often in an abnormally high decibel fashion, the stupidity of the Eurozone leaders from day one. Now that he has been proven correct, he has every right to gloat, which he does to everyone's delightful amusement in the European Parliament. The look on the unelected von Rumpy's face, especially as he watches his decade-long bureaucratic nirvana crash and burn every single day, is quite priceless. So without further ado, let's go to the clip. Nigel Farage of the UK Independence Party lambasting the Eurocrats in the European Parliament. Well, here we are, on the edge of a financial and social disaster, and in the room today we have the four men who were supposed to be responsible. 
and yet we've listened to the dullest, most technocratic speeches I've ever heard. You are all in denial. By any objective measure, the euro is a failure. And who is actually responsible? And who's in charge out of you lot? Well, of course, the answer is none of you, because none of you have been elected. None of you actually have any democratic legitimacy for the roles that you currently hold within this crisis. And into this vacuum, albeit reluctantly, has stepped Angela Merkel. And we are now living, we are now living in a German-dominated Europe. Something that the European project was actually supposed to stop. Something that those that went before us actually paid a heavy price in blood to prevent. I don't want to live in a German-dominated Europe, and nor do the citizens of Europe. But you guys have played a role. Because when Mr. Papandreou got up and used the word referendum, or Mr. Wren, you described it as a breach of confidence, and your friends here got together like a pack of hyenas, rounded on Papandreou, had him removed and replaced by a puppet government. What an absolutely disgusting spectacle that was. And not satisfied with that, you decided that Berlusconi had to go. So he was removed and replaced by Mr. Monti, a former European Commissioner, a fellow architect of this Euro disaster, and a man who wasn't even a member of the Parliament. It's getting like an Agatha Christie novel, where we're trying to sort of work out who's the next person that's going to be bumped off. The difference is we know who the villains are. You should all be held accountable for what you've done. You should all be fired. And I have to say, Mr. Van Rompuy, 18 months ago when we first met, um, I was wrong about you. I said you'd be the quiet assassin of nation-state democracy, but you're not anymore. You're rather noisy about it, aren't you? You, an unelected man, went to Italy and said this is not the time for elections, but the time for actions. What in God's name gives you the right to say that to the Italian people? Thank you. <laughs> well, he is certainly known for his speeches, and there's another one, I think, for the, uh, the record books. There's Nigel Farage taking the Eurocrats to task in their home turf at the European Parliament just the other day. So, again, um, excellent video, and I think one to spread around. And, of course, again, an excellent resource there, zerohedge.com, for anyone who's looking for a better handle on the economics jargon and terminology that we're talking about. It tends to employ that quite heavily there at Zero Hedge, but I think it's a good way to get into it because certainly they are uh, skewering, the, skewering the banksters and uh, taking them to task for what they're doing, so it's a good way to get into the, the jargon and understand it for what it is. Another great source I'd recommend for people, uh, Bob Chapman, a.k.a. The International Forecaster at theinternationalforecaster.com. People might know that he's a regular guest on CorbettReport.com, so if you don't subscribe or listen to the interviews coming out of the interviews tab of CorbettReport.com, I suggest you do, and listen especially to every Monday night's conversation with Bob Chapman. Again, a great resource on all of this information. But we're right up against a break, so let's take a moment to recoup our thoughts. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back with more Economics 101 right after this. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. Karate, we in the zone. What does it take for you to live your life right? Do you dream? Can you sleep at night? Why does it feel that you are constantly tested?
Welcome back, my friends. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and you are tuned into Corbett Report Radio. Over half a century ago, Carol Quigley wrote the following about the Bank for International Settlements. The powers of financial capitalism had another far-reaching aim, nothing less than to create a world system of financial control in private hands able to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the world as a whole. This system was to be controlled in a feudalist fashion by the central banks of the world, acting in concert by secret agreements arrived at in frequent private meetings and conferences. The apex of the system was to be the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, Switzerland, a private bank owned and controlled by the world's central banks, which were themselves private corporations. End quote. Now, that's an extremely important quote by an extremely important person, but if you don't know who Carol Quigley was, well, I'll leave that for you to discover. And again, I'll provide some links in the notes for today's episode at CorbettReport.com slash radio. All right, now let's turn to an interview that I did with Patrick Carmack, one of the producers of the Money Masters, an absolutely essential viewing documentary about the economic system, a couple of years ago, and we talked about the, the Bank for International Settlements and what it really is. Well, the Bank for International Settlements was established by the Hague Agreements in 1930, and it was initially to process the uh, payments by the defeated nations, Germany, Austria, and so forth, to the victors, and um, that was how it got started. It, it took on, it's taken on a new character, much like NATO has. As you know, NATO was originally a defensive alliance, and it's become actually an aggressive alliance with troops now. As you know, in Afghanistan, they don't have anything to do with defending Europe, uh, at least directly. Well, that's similar to the Bank for International Settlements. It's it's transformed so much, its original purposes have been completely uh, lost. Um, It has 57 member central banks. And those central banks, their object is very, very similar to what happens in the United States and in other countries with systems similar to the United States banking system, which is that the member banks get together to, in order to coordinate and set policy, particularly monetary policy. And I guess another way to put that would be credit policy. And uh, in the United States, as you know, there's 12 members of the Federal Reserve System member banks, and they're in turn owned by all the banks in each one of their districts. So the Federal Reserve's actually privately owned, as a lot of people know, the stock's all held by banks, privately owned banks. The 57-member uh, central banks in the uh, BIS, Bank for International Settlements, get together to set policy, much like the Federal Reserve Board of Governors does. And so it's essentially replicated on an international scale what the Bank of England initiated in England in uh, 1694, uh, which was a national control over money through a privately owned bank, uh, and what the Federal Reserve subsequently did with the passage of the Federal Reserve Act in 1913. And in 1930, as I mentioned, the BIS was established, but its character has transformed most particularly in the last uh, 30 years. And those 57 member banks... Uh, can make various determinations on how they measure various things in their monetary system, like collateral, bank capital, uh, how their collateral capital is evaluated or valued. And that, in turn, has an impact in each member bank 
and in the world at large because these 57 nations represent all the basically all the significant uh, nations on earth that have you know a huge impact on global economics and uh, they in particular uh, in 1988 and in 2004 uh, initiated regulations that had uh, a significant impact on global economic activity and uh, in uh, 19 the, the regulations that passed in 1988 is called Basel 1 Bank for International Settlements is located in Basel, Switzerland. Uh, it is exempt from Swiss law. It's like a super, it's above their government. They can't, that is to say, you know, that, for instance, Swiss government can't execute search warrants. Uh, their police cannot enter the premises. It's like a, an extraterritorial entity within Switzerland. So, which is an interesting fact all by itself. And in that it replicates the city in London where the Bank of England sits. Uh, but in any case, um, in 1988, they passed Basel I, which established for the first time a global uh, capital uh, adequacy standard, or which was 8%. So just in simple terms, they had to have 8% of their loans available in terms of capital uh, in the bank. In 2004, uh, they passed Basel II, and what it did is it didn't change the 8%, but it changed the way it was calculated, and specifically by adopting a mark-to-the-market standard so that the uh, collateral, which is a collateral can be used as capital. There's various tiers in, in how they calculate capital, but uh, in any case, it affected how that was valued. It had to be valued based on the current market value, mark-to-the-market. Well, that was fine, and if the market's going up, uh, it means banks can actually increase their loans because their capital is being appreciated in value or inflated. But when it goes down, it has a negative effect, and that's what happened. So when the housing market in the U.S. began to downturn, which was inevitable due to all the subprime loans and so forth, which everybody was aware of, uh, in November of 2007, the uh, Basel II was implemented in the United States. In December 2007, the stock market plunged and credit began its severe contraction, and that was really the significant beginning of our current economic woes was a direct effect of the implementation of Basel II. And because those housing values went down, then people had, banks had to increase their capital by decreasing their loans, their capital percentage by decreasing loans which meant they quit making loans and they called some loans in. They made loans harder to get and so forth. Well, that, of course, further uh, depreciated or hurt the housing market and other economic activity because if people can't get loans, obviously, or the standards form are higher, increased, then obviously there's going to be fewer home sales, which further decreased the value of homes and their collateral. So they called in more uh, loans and made, you know, increased the credit standards and so forth. So we can attribute what has happened worldwide to the uh, uh, same uh, group, the Bank for International Settlements, that, that did it to Japan specifically back in 88, and now it's happened to the whole world. It's very, very difficult to believe that this was all done in ignorance, and certainly wasn't done in ignorance in 88. Anybody that knows anything about banking would, could predict the effects then as well as in 2007. The markets did predict it. Things have plunged, and that's where we are. 
a lot more to be said about that, but that's the Bank for International Settlements. That's the kind of power it has. It's global, and it has the same power on the global level now that the Fed has on the uh, national level in the United States. All right, a fascinating, fascinating conversation, and there is more to it. So I'll uh, once again urge you to go and watch the full YouTube video on my YouTube account so you can listen to the full conversation. But we'll leave it there for now because I want to move straight along into a completely different subject with a very, uh, well, animated and interesting economic uh, commentator, Max Kaiser. And I'm sure most of you know Max Kaiser of MaxKaiser.com and his work, well, for the BBC and for RT and for Al Jazeera and for all sorts of other out- outlets and, uh, of course, his own work on his own website. And He's a very animated and very interesting economic thinker, so I'm sure you've probably encountered him before. And It was a couple of years ago that I managed to get him on Economics 101 to talk about an idea that's near and dear to his heart, the idea of using the power of the boycott, something that we were talking about just the other day in our Solutions episode of this bo- broadcast, we were talking about uh, the idea of boycotting the globalists, and uh, Max Kaiser has not only thought about it, he's really come up with a, a plan for it, and he runs a site called Karma Bank, that's K-A-R-M-A-B-A-N-Q-U-E, Karma Bank, in which he uh, puts forward this idea, which he's really been putting forward for years now, and has gained some no- notoriety for, for doing that. And one of his ideas is to target Coca-Cola, of all companies, because he thinks it's particularly vulnerable being uh, assaulted, I suppose, in this way by the people taking the power back into their own hands. So let's listen to just the beginning of this conversation with Max Kaiser about the power of the boycott. Okay, the big idea is, first of all, to understand what the problem is. The problem is that we've got too much leverage in the system. You've got layers and layers of leverage. You've got hundreds of trillions of dollars in derivatives, which are just another word for debt and leverage. So if you're pushing back, you got to figure out how to use the leverage in your favor. And so this is what I've been working on, and I've been talking about this for a number of years now. The key element in the total global finance system are the hedge funds. The hedge funds, they've got a few trillion dollars in capital to work with, and, of course, they can leverage that up to 10, 20, 30 times that. And they're a huge force in pushing prices around, and we see their influence all the time. We see their influence during market uh, crashes and market spikes. So the question is, if you are trying to push back against the system, is it possible to co-opt the hedge funds? Can you get them to do what you want them to do? And my theory is that you can. You can get them to do what you want them to do. And what I did was I looked at all the various corporations trading on the New York Stock Exchange, and I tried to find one that could be turned into hedge fund bait. I tried to find a company that I could bait the hedge funds to start attacking it with short sales, that is, making negative bets. And the company is Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola is vulnerable because it's an easy company to boycott, which means that you can take money away from their top line. You can erase money from their top line revenues and much easier than you can, let's say, with a company like uh, British Petroleum or Exxon. And it's a company that hedge funds, once they start to sell short, you will then trigger a response in the entire hedge fund community to follow suit because the entire hedge fund industry 
really fits into game theory. In other words, if one of them starts to make money with a trade like selling Coca-Cola stock short, then they all have to follow suit or else they lose out on this winning trade. So now you've got a boycott that's taking revenues away from the company. The company is reporting decreased earnings. The stock starts to sell off. Then hedge funds start to attack it, and they fuel the stock price to move down lower, which, of course, encourages more people to boycott, and you're, now you've got leverage. Now you're using the inherent leverage in the system against the system. You're using leverage by picking the most vulnerable company to a boycott, and then you're magnifying that leverage by triggering a response in the hedge fund community to do your dirty work for you. And my position is that anybody who is sick and tired of the corporate domination of every aspect of life in America and anywhere else in the world, the, the simple, to me, the simple response is to think strategically don't get hung up with trying to do the right thing or the moral thing, but think about doing the most effective pushback you possibly can with the least cost. And it all roads lead back to this idea. Boycott Coca-Cola until the stock starts to go down, which will trigger a hedge fund attack, and now you've got a cycle of leverage working in your favor. And I can tell you what people say. Are the problems with this, and there are, and 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 then, then you, but that that's basically the idea. So, so in effect, what you're saying is you can get the the hyenas to start attacking them the, themselves, which is exactly precisely what we want to start doing. So, so I guess that that's an excellent idea. But I understand that this isn't just uh, you're you're picking a, a company out of a hat. I think you have something called the uh, K K. KBR or the the boycott uh, 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 vulnerability ratio. What what exactly uh, are you doing to to find, figure out that Coke is the the company to hit you? Right, right. So we track the vulnerability uh, ratio and we track the vulnerability index. And basically, this is just two numbers that are that are uh, stuck together. One one number is how hated is the company. So there are five or six companies that are very hated, very much hated. ExxonMobil usually tops the list, but now I would probably guess that British Petroleum is probably number one on the list. Uh, Microsoft is a hated company. Um, Starbucks at one point was a hated company. Coca-Cola, McDonald's. So these are the most hated companies, and this is gauged by simply by people coming to the site. This is, I'm talking about the Bank site, and they vote for the two or three companies that they are the most uh, vehemently against. The other, the other number I look for is I take the current stock price and I figure out uh, the sales of the company divided by the current market capitalization to, to figure out for every dollar of sale or boycott that I withhold, what impact will it have on the actual stock price? So in the case of ExxonMobil, for every dollar I don't spend at ExxonMobil, I will remove approximately $1.50 from the market capitalization or the stock price. In the case of Coca-Cola, because it trades at close to five times its sales, for every dollar I don't spend with Coca-Cola, I'm removing close to $5 worth of market capitalization. So immediately by focusing exclusively on Coca-Cola, I've 
leveraged my bang for my boycott buck by three, four, or five times what I would in any other situation. So I put those two things together, the, the fact that this company is in the, one of the most hated companies and definitely the most vulnerable and one of the most vulnerable to a boycott, and that and this sorts itself out. So this is the target. This is a target company. Once again, Max Kaiser of MaxKaiser.com. And, of course, you can find the full interview that goes on for a few more minutes on my YouTube website. And, of course, as always, uh, the link will be in the notes at CorbettReport.com slash radio. And I suggest you check check that out because not only that, but, of course, all of the other uh, episodes of Economics 101, I think, some really interesting things. And I hope uh, it really helps you in breaking down some of these terms and concepts and ideas and agree or disagree with any of the individual ideas, I think we need to be starting this conversation rather than the phony types of conversations that they want to lead us into by the corporate-controlled media on the corporate-sanctioned and officially government-approved topics of conversation and, of course, never talking about issues like the Fed or where money comes from. Anyway, we're right up against a break, so let's take a few minutes to collect our thoughts, and we'll be right back with more after this. Corbett here from CorbettReport.com, here with the closing minutes of tonight's edition of Corbett Report Radio and the closing minutes of another week of broadcasts. And tonight we've been talking about Economics 101, the jargon and ideas and other things that the banksters have used to bedazzle us into thinking that their system is really anything other than an entire magical system that's been created really out of whole cloth in order to swindle you and I. And I think it's important to understand that this is something that's been done deliberately. So tonight I want to take a look at an article that I wrote way back in 2008, three years ago now, about how all of this, all of this system has been engineered to collapse. And this is a point that I used to make a lot, but now I think I just tend to assume that my audience understands it. But I think it's something that we still need to say from time to time and make clear. So I'm going to leave you with uh, just a short snippet from an article that I wrote a few years ago called Breaking the Economy in Order to Fix It, How and Why the Elite Are Engineering the Next Depression. I really hope that you'll go and take a look at this full article because I think it still does a good job of documenting really what's going on here and why it's happening and why all of this really has been engineered on purpose. But reading from that article, quote, There's a corollary to the old adage, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If you want to fix something, you'd better break it first. The logic is simple enough for a child to understand, yet most adults fail to grasp it. Take the current financial meltdown, which is threatening to bring down the American empire and destabilize the world economy. That it has been created by the greed and avarice of those at the top of the financial pyramid is easy enough to demonstrate. Bubbles Greenspan, ex-chairman of the Federal Reserve, pretended to save the economy after the popping of the dot-com bubble by lowering the prime lending rate to 1%, thus creating the housing bubble. Financial investors, sensing opportunity, began making risky loans to unsuitable candidates and then dressing these loans up as AAA securities through financial wizardry. Ratings agencies and regulators look the other way. 
Finally, when the loans started to default and the bubble began to burst, helicopter Ben Bernanke, the current Fed chairman, lived up to his moniker by dropping tens of billions of Federal Reserve funny money, liquidity, onto Wall Street from his metaphorical Fed helicopter. As a result, the dollar continues to devalue at an ever-increasing rate, leading to price rises on imports across the board, including, of course, oil. These facts are easily understood. Right, as I say, I'll leave it there for now. I really hope you do take a look at that full article as it goes into some of the background and history of the way that this uh, entire collapse of the economy has been engineered. But suffice it to say, it has been engineered. And that is unfortunately the world we're living in. And unfortunately, we're also living in a world that's created and funded and fueled through this debt-based funny money they like to call Federal Reserve notes and that we often just call money without really thinking about what it is. But unfortunately, we do live in that system. And I'm just an independent web journalist here just trying to do what I can to get the information out. So uh, if you do help, want to support me in that effort and want to help out, then, uh, of course, your support is greatly appreciated. And at CorbettReport.com, that's C-O-R-B-E-T-T Report.com, you can either buy a copy of my 2009 video archive DVD with some of my best videos from the year 2009, or you can sign up to be a subscriber of the Corbett Report, someone who donates 100 Japanese yen a month. That's about a buck 40 and uh doing so just a tiny tiny little amount really does help to uh, make all of this possible all of the work that i'm doing here including such things as economics 101 which i i want to continue doing in the future again it's like film literature in the new world order if i had an infinite amount of time i would be using it to do things like this on a more regular basis but at any rate uh i'm doing what i can and i hope that you find it valuable So to all of you who have supported me in the past in whatever way, be that uh, monetary or otherwise, just spreading the word about this information, my hat's off to all of you. And again, let me reiterate, the solution is not going to come from someone on a high horse who rides in to save the day. It's going to come from each and every one of us and each and every one of you working together to create the communities we want to see. That's all for tonight. Thank you for joining me, and I hope you'll join me again next week for more Corbett Report Radio.